Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. We're presented by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code DAN for a special offer when you sign up. That's code DAN only at DraftKings Sportsbook. If you have not read this man's books, I urge you to do so because he gets in there on some sports. He chooses good subjects. I've told you that before, but he also does the reporting. So he gives you a really honest, unvarnished look at his sports subject matter and is able to also to put it in the context of the day. Uh, So Jeff Perlman is one of the best sports authors going and winning time uh, that you can watch now on HBO. It's being produced by our friend Adam McKay. Winning time is based on a unique time in American sports, a unique team in American sports. And these are the things that Perlman chooses as subject matter. And now it's being remembered as nostalgia. So I wanted to cover with him some of the things uh, that he wrote in the book that bore the inspiration that made winning time. Jeff, thank you for offering your time again. Uh, Have you seen the entirety of winning time? Do you get secret access because it's based on your work? I do. It's one of the perks. I've seen all 10 episodes. And how do you feel about what it is that you've seen? I mean, I feel like, Dan, you know, you're a writer and you spend most of your time sitting in a cave by yourself and someone comes along and says, we're going to make an HBO series out of your show. It'd be, it would take a lot for me to dislike this experience. And I actually love, I'm not just, I love the show and I love the authenticity of it. So I'm, I'm really happy. Well, take me through, though, the labyrinth, because you do sport. This is not what you imagine, right? A book is such a giant undertaking. People don't have any idea, and you're particularly meticulous. Can you just explain to people what goes into one of your books, how many people you talk to, and how long all of that takes? Yeah, I mean, I usually interview between... the This book, I interviewed 350 people, which um, actually, it's not as many as most because the NBA rosters are smaller. Like if I do an NFL book, you you can interview 600, 700 people. And it usually takes about two years and a year and a half of that is just research. So that means the first thing I always do is go on eBay and find every media guide, every book about the subject and just buy them all, go through them all with the highlighter. At the same time, you build a library using uh, newspapers.com or Nexus, usually of about 10,000 pages of the day by day of that team. So for this book, it was 79 through 91. So literally you build a library of every article you could find from that period. Uh, And then you're also building a library of every interview. So for this book, again, there's 350 people. And and that takes, all of that takes about a year and a half. And you hopefully you have the world's biggest library on whatever subject you're writing about. And then you have six months to basically comb through it all and try to write something that makes sense. Do you like that part of it? No, I freaking hate it. But I, but I, I know I'm not, I don't mean this in a pretentious way. I don't think it's any different than like an NBA player taking jumpers in a dark gym. You know, like you need to do it. You, you can't have a book if you don't put the work in. So, I mean, I love like knocking on doors. I love talking to people. I love interviewing people. But sitting in my office by myself for 12 hours in a day, 
going day by day through every newspaper I can find can be really tedious and really rough. Well, explain to me the labyrinth of those 18 months emotionally when you're doing that 12 hours a day, doing something you don't like. It must impact the rest of your life. Like, you can't just be, how do you separate yourself from that? Because that sounds like a terrible, terrible dungeon that is sort of at the opposite end of where the inspiration for the book lies. Well, the thing is, like, there are parts of it you love. And when you find little things, this is going to sound dumb, but I wrote a book about the uh, 86 Mets. It was my first book ever. And now going through that, I just, this always sticks in my head. The Mets had a pitcher named Sid Fernandez. And there was some little mention in the New York Post one day, some random day in 1986, that Sid Fernandez was spotted at a pizza place in Brooklyn eating 18 slices of pizza, right? <laughs> and you find a little nugget like that. Well, and he's Dump fat. And he's fat. And he's out and of shape. Like people might not know that he's a fat man. And so you found right. this was, you're reporting on earth that Sid Fernandez once ate 18 pizza slices for lunch. <laughs> right. And you find that little nugget and you're just euphoric. So you become hyper obsessive. Nobody wants to talk to you. Like my wife is like, I, you need to stop. Like, I have a Bo Jackson book coming out in October. And she'll be like, you need to stop telling me about Bo Jackson now. Like, it's, I get it. You, I get it. I, I don't need another story. But in your head, you really become obsessed. And I think I become a little bit like an addict where I just need to know more information, more information, more information. And it's grinding and it beats you up. But at the same time, every time you find something amazing or something you didn't know, it really does fuel you. So it's really like pleasure pain. It's pleasure pain. Well, as we talk about where inspirations reside, how do you choose? How meticulously do you choose your ideas? You must. Like, it well, must be crazy. If you're gonna if you're going to do this for subject matter, it must be because you have identified, I this book will sell because this is an undercovered, super interesting team. The thing is, you never know for sure. You can't, there's no guarantees whether a book is going to sell or not. The, like the, the, mis, the book I regret in my career is I did a biography of Roger Clemens. And number one, it didn't sell well. Uh, number two, I guess the big one, number two, is I just didn't really enjoy writing about him. Like I kept, the whole process, I kept thinking, this guy isn't nearly as interesting as I would like him to be. And what you end up doing is finding side subjects that keep you going. Like Clemens, is, Clemens had a brother who was a drug addict. And... His brother's wife was killed by drug dealers. And that was really interesting. So I, I ended up going down this long path. But Roger Clemens was really boring to me. And I think the book reflects it. It wasn't that great of a book. So you have to, you have to love the subject or at least really find the subject interesting you're writing about. What do you regard as the one that you wrote that you loved the most that way? Probably Walter Payton. I did a book called Sweetness. I just found his life riveting, beyond riveting. And the other one, I wrote a book about the old USFL, the United States Football League. And it was the one book, my editor, my uh, agent literally said to me at one point, Jeff, nobody wants an F in USFL book. And I had every publisher, publishing house I went to reject me, reject me, reject me. And I only got the deal because I coupled it with a Brett Favre book. Hodden Mifflin said, if you do the Favre book, we'll, we'll pay you almost nothing, but you can do the USFL book. And I knew the USFL was a good book. I didn't know if it would sell a lot, but I just knew in my heart it was a great subject. And when that thing made the bestseller list, it was probably maybe the most gratifying moment of my career. 
I can mine you for so many interesting details on things because you have seen some things in the covering of interesting personalities in sports that and reported some things that others haven't bothered to look at. But I'm guessing that your your USFL book, you saw some Trump stuff before the rest of us, right? It was really weird. I was working on that book while he was running for president. And I did not pitch that book because of Trump. I'd been pitching it for years and years and years. The timing just happened to be so. And I would be telling people all the time, you don't understand. I'd be like, you don't understand. The blueprint is right here. Everything that you, everything that's happening here in 2020, it's here. The fake promises, the bullying, the bravado, the nonsense, the puffing himself up, the lying to other people. It was all right there. I feel like the USFL is a blueprint for Donald Trump as president. What did you find out that gives you illumination now? Like, what are the details that you can give people about his USFL reign and what he was trying to do that would prove what it, what it is that you're articulating there? Oh, the number one thing by far. He is an owner in the USFL. He owns the New Jersey Generals, so he is a part of this league. He desperately wants his, wants to be an NFL owner. Like his goal has always been, was always to be the, an owner of an NFL team. He has a meeting with Pete Rozelle, the NFL commissioner, uh, in a suite at the Pierre Hotel in New York City that Donald Trump pays for. And he says to Roselle, and I interviewed the other guy in the room. He says to Roselle, I'll paraphrase, he says, I don't give a crap about this league I'm in. I just don't care. If you get me an NFL team, I will help you sink this thing. I promise you. And Roselle says to him, because Roselle smelled BS from, you know, 100 miles away, he said, as long as I'm involved in the NFL, as long as my heirs are involved in the NFL, you will never have anything to do with this league. So number one, it was uh, Trump basically undermining his own people. Um, and number two, years later, when you saw Trump always railing against the NFL, 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 it's all based or it all got its start from this league rejecting him and telling him he's not good enough. He always wanted to be, he was basically new money. And the NFL with the Roonies and the Maras and, the, you know, they had no need for him. And that resentment went way back to the USFL experience. Winning Time, as I mentioned, the HBO show is the subject matter is Pat Riley's Showtime Lakers. And the book Jeff Perlman wrote is the inspiration for it, as was this team. Uh, and I, it's not hard to understand why this team is so interesting. When you choose your subjects and you chose the 86 Mets and you see ESPN, do a 30 for 30 or multiple 30 for 30s on some of the things that you're writing about in your 86 Mets book. Did that depiction of some of the stuff that you had reported, even though it wasn't based on your book, but probably had some details you recognized, was that depiction done well in your mind as the author and really the authority on that team? It was actually, I thought it was really good. I, um, I don't know if you ever get this in your career, I do get pangs of jealousy or territorial, provincial something when I see other people take on a, a subject that I did, even though they interviewed me for the 30 for 30. And, um, you know, like a lot of it was from my book and it wasn't really attributed, but it's kind of public domain information. So I can't be ups really upset, but it's, they did it really well. Was it, it wasn't an easy watch for me because I do get, I, I feel like, ah, the 86 Mets, that's my topic but I don't own the topic. Everyone has a right to do it. And they did, they put a lot into it. They clearly cared about the subject. And that's honestly what matters the most. They interviewed me for eight hours in my backyard and it was during COVID. 
And I was happy to be talking about a subject I loved with actual people during such a long stretch of misery. But yeah, I mean, do I think that that 30 for 30 exists without the bad guys won? I mean, probably not. But in a way, that's cool because you want to extend the legacy. And that, that honestly, God, I swear, my number one thing is, is I was happy to see them talking about this team because you don't want it lost to history, to sports history. So ultimately, I swear to God, I'm not just saying that. Ultimately, I was just happy that they did it. I, I believe you, but how was this experience different? Because I'm I'm guessing that the makers of this involving you in the process beyond that post-pandemic, uh, you got to taste a little bit of Hollywood, which these when you're grinding for 12 hours a day, 12 hours a day during 18 dark research months, like I, I don't think your wildest dreams have this as the depiction, do they? No. This was one of the craziest experiences of my life. It was a joy. They had a premiere party a couple of days before the first episode. And I got to take my, my daughter's a college freshman, my son's a high school sophomore. It was in Hollywood. It was at this huge hotel. There were tons of people, all these celebrities. Not that I care about celebrities, but my kids, you know, their eyes were like the size of half dollars. And um, there's just this moment. And there was a moment, there was a moment when Adam McKay, you know, the, the famed director, producer, he's giving a talk before they show the first episode. And he asked me to stand up and he knows I get embarrassed by this stuff. Like, I, I don't love this stuff. And But he, he's like, Jeff, you can't sit down. Jeff, I know you want to sit down. You can't sit down. And he's like, I just want to say, Jeff Perlman, I don't know, he went on this, like, long monologue just about the book and about the experience. And with my kids sitting next to me, you just kind of want your kids to be proud of you. I know it sounds dumb, but, like, you really do. And it was just a good moment for me. It was a really nice moment. And what are the details in the book? that you, and we've talked about the book with you before, but what are the details that you want the audience to know? Why would you be recommending to them for them to watch or to care about these nostalgic teams? Oh, I just think the, the growth of Magic Johnson in LA at the time Jerry Buss buys a team with these merging of characters is fantastic. And one of the things I really love about the series is the attention they give to Jack McKinney, who was the coach of the Lakers when, when Magic arrived. He was the first coach Jerry Buss hired, although he, he did hire Jerry Tarkanian for about a day and a half, but Jack McKinney was the first coach. And a lot of people just never knew, and I didn't know until I worked on the book, the whole story of this coach. He coaches Magic for about 15 games, and on an off day, he goes to play tennis with his assistant coach, Paul Westhead, is riding his bicycle, falls off the bike, lands on his head, is taken to the hospital. He's a John Doe. He's a head coach of the LA Lakers. He's a John Doe at hospital in LA. And he never coaches a team again. And they pay so much attention in this show to Jack McKinney in the later episodes. It freaking warms my heart because it's a, I just love little details that nobody knew that maybe I uncovered or, or at least brought to light in a book. And then to see them on TV and to know people might be talking about it or be aware of it. I mean, that's kind of, you just want a history to be preserved. And I feel like the show does that well. Why was that team so interesting? And what can you tell us about the depiction in winning time of Kareem and just what you saw when reporting around Kareem? Because to me, he's a pivotal, that's a civil rights figure in the middle of that with a great deal of distrust, it seemed like to me, of of just the horrors that that white people were were bringing upon him every day. Well, I'll tell you, Kareem has the worst publicist I've ever heard of in my life. She's an abomination of a publicist, and she has made his his reputation far worse than it is. Uh, rejection, rejection. I'll tell you, true story, Dan. When I was working on Showtime, I, I 
I desperately wanted to interview Kareem and I kept getting blown off, blown off, blown off. I was at the NBA Hall of Fame induction ceremonies to interview Jamal Wilkes. And um, Kareem's publicist texts me and she said, Jeff, I have great news. Uh, let's meet. And I was thinking, oh, this is amazing. Kareem's going to talk to me. This is great. So I meet her. I'm like, all right. And I meet her. And she says, all right, Jeff, amazing news. How do you feel about this? Kareem wants to do an exhibit with Sports Illustrated, like a roving exhibit where we'll take all his memorabilia and we'll put it in a van and Sports Illustrated can sponsor it and we can travel all over the country. It'll be amazing. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I haven't worked for Sports Illustrated in 10 years. I just want to interview the guy. And she's like, oh yeah, no, that's not going to happen. See, there's just something off about the whole thing. And his he should be much more highly regarded and much more celebrated, but he's really had kind of a self-sabotaging post-basketball career. I think the guy is so influential. I think he's probably the most intelligent athlete I've ever written about. Um, I agree with you. He's a civil rights figure. He really is. He should be thought of in the way we think of Muhammad Ali, but he's not. Because number one, he's never been that friendly. He's not gregarious. And the people around him who handle of his career have been a freaking train wreck. That's riveting to me for a number of reasons, because I do believe Kareem could have aged. He writes very well and is a good columnist and uh, feels scholarly when he writes. But I've heard all the horror stories. Uh, some of my sports writing brethren talk legendarily about uh, just having bad relations with him and his publicist. How could it have been done differently? Because one of the great lessons to me in winning time or what you just made of the difference between Ali and Kareem is the bridge between black people and white people in the fighting sometimes with the really famous athletes. You're amazed at how much you get away with with a smile, with a smile, right? Because Muhammad Ali was fighting, but he was also entertaining. He was smiling. He was gregarious. Magic Johnson, hell, I'm not sure. The whole thing isn't built around his smile. The whole yeah. magic thing built around, well, I'll build the bridge to white people as I go against Larry Bird, and it won't be any kind of threatening. Kareem right. has always been a scowl. I don't know how much could have been done. I think the thing about Kareem is he accurately saw through the BS um, honestly, I think one thing we could have done just as a profession, and this predates me and you, is we could have had a more diverse workforce from the beginning. I think if, if, the, if the writers covering him reflected the league and there was a more diverse uh, press corps, I think that would have gone a long way. I just think he had trust issues, understandably, from his background. So, I mean, he's definitely had bad people around him. He's definitely not gregarious. He's definitely not open. He does not have warmth naturally coming out of him. But I also just think he viewed us all very warily, and there was some there was some good reason for that. But that's why he wasn't smiling, though, Jeff. That's my point entirely is that in order to build the bridge, even then, it's not that long ago between the great athlete who's of substantive moral character, uh, that he's got to come to you, and it's got to be with a smile on his face. Even though Kareem Abdul-Jabbar didn't pull up, put up with bullshit, and was like, "No, nah, man, like, like, do you know how great I am at this?" Like. He he was somebody who was, I, I don't know, I'm speaking to an authority. You can tell me how angry and hurt he is because he should be. Yeah, no, I don't disagree with you and very. And he, he holds a lot of resentment over the way he was treated. And, and I always found it really fascinating researching him. We don't, we don't talk about this enough in a way. Like the mere agony and repetitiveness of going through your life being asked, how's the weather up there, right? From the time you're six years old. 
being just over and over and over again, being a museum piece, walking around, people pointing at you, people wanting pictures with you, people asking you stupid questions about your height. And um, he just freaking hated it. And when he, you know, when the Lakers used to travel and they would fly commercial during this period, he would take his book, he would go in an airport bathroom, he would go in a toilet stall, and he would sit there for an hour until the flight was time, it was time to go just reading his book because he hated dealing with people. So I do get it. A lot has changed over the years, but you know one thing that has the great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what's the best thing about the original light beer? I pose this question to you. I don't know. You tell me right now. Okay, yeah, that's good. I like that. Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975, and we still haven't settled it. The best thing for me about a nice Miller Lite is when I'm on the boat, I bring those tall, I, I don't even go for the, the regular 12 ounce cans. I hit the tall boy 16 ounce cans. They usually come in a four packs wherever I buy beer. You put it in the cooler, you put some ice on top. The moment you take it out and the sun reflects off that gold top of Miller Lite with that white can, a beautiful sight out on the open ocean. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling and it tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right to your door, visit MillerLite.com beach, or you can find it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 96 calories per 12 ounces, fewer cows and carbs than premium regular beer. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I should let the audience know that Jeff Perlman has written nine best-selling books about interesting sports things. Three Ring Circus, USFL, Favre, Showtime, Sweetness, Rocket, Boys, Bonds, Guys. You told us that uh, Rocket represents the, the, the regret in the group. Which do you regard as the most interesting subject matter? Not the best of books, two different questions. The most oh. interesting subject matter. Oh, man. I think uh, I would still say Walter Payton. I just think Walter Payton's life from birth to death, I just couldn't get enough of it. And I found him so complicated and really fascinating and really deep and very self-aware. And he had a lot of flaws, but he also, he really hated the flaws and wanted to present this front to people because he knew what people thought about him and he didn't want to disappoint them. And I think when someone, like the difference between Clemens and, and, and Walter Payton is Clemens had no self-awareness none zero no self-awareness at all he was this big lug he loved playing baseball he loved women he loved beer and that was kind of the surface level of him and it was very hard to get past that and walter payton was painfully self-aware and self-aware subjects are just far more interesting to write about where does far fall in there because i think you must have been riveted and stimulated to watch how Favre went from gunslinging action hero who loves his dad and plays well 
right after his dad dies and touches us all emotionally and carries the league to, wow, there's a lot of stuff there that has revealed itself in retirement that is unpleasant, that doesn't quite fit the mythology. It's like I watch Favre now with my hands, you know, with my eyes behind my fingers because it's very hard to watch. And um, I feel like the way he treated Jen Sturger, the reporter he sent his, his phallic pictures to, revealed a lot about him. I don't think he's a particularly good guy. Um, I don't think he's a particularly smart guy. I found his life very interesting. I think anyone who battles addiction issues and learns to overcome them and um, the highs and lows of it all are really interesting. I think his wife is a really fascinating character. But watching him now, it's funny. I loved his family. Like, I loved his family. His mom is one of the nicest, most sort of polite, endearing people I've ever dealt with. But he's just kind of a train wreck. And you wrote about him. What was that experience like as you were writing that stuff? And you're writing about, again, not unlike Rocket, it seems like to me. Interesting. That's, you know, more interesting than Rocket. More interesting, probably, detours as well through his family. But... You're writing about somebody ultimately you don't like very much. It seems like I didn't dislike him when I was writing about. Him. I don't. I mean, I don't personally dislike him now. I didn't dislike him when I was writing about him. The thing that was weird about that book that that I've never had happen to me is he didn't talk to me for the book. And I early on when I was working on it, I DM'd over Facebook his sister, and I said, "Hey, my name is Jeff Perlman. I'm working on this book. Any chance you talk to me?" And she said, "Well, message me when you come down to Mississippi, and maybe we can get coffee." So I, um, I messaged her and she said, oh, why don't you just come by the house? And I was like, all right. And I went to her house and she was there and Brett's mom was there. And this was early in the process. And they're like, first thing Benita, his mom says, is, uh, is Brett helping you with the book? And I said, no, I'm trying, but not yet. And I figured, well, that'll be it for me. And they ended up giving me about two hours at their house. And Benita has her daughter go up into the attic and come down with all these scrapbooks. And she says, you can take these home with you. Just get them back to me later. So literally, Brett Favre's mom is sending me back home. And it was after Katrina. So these scrapbooks, aside, a, a gross aside, these scrapbooks were up in the attic because of the flooding. And when I bring them home and I take them out of this bag in my house in New York, all these mouse pellets fall all over my house in New York. And my wife is is horrified. Like, what, what is this you're bringing to the house? And it was the, the mouse pellets from Brett Favre's attic in Kill, Mississippi. But the family alone, I talked to all the siblings, I talked to cousins, uncles, sis, you know, aunts. They made that experience really enriching for me. Who do you think is the most interesting character in Showtime? Oh, wow. Um, the guy I really think of is, um, this is not a sexy answer. They had a center they drafted out of the University of the District of Columbia named Earl Jones. He was their first round pick. He was a late round pick. And he was, uh, at one point, he was considered, coming out of high school, he was placed with uh, Ewing and, and uh, Ralph Sampson as all-time great, potentially great big men. And he played Division Two instead of Division One because of grades. Jerry West used to have this thing. He said, if you're going to draft a mistake, at least draft big. And this guy was seven foot and I think 160 pounds. And he shows up in camp, and he's from West Virginia, and everyone's horrified by his dental work. He has like decaying teeth and they send him to a dentist on day two. They're like, you need to get your teeth redone. And he's horrible from the beginning and he's not a serious figure. And every day Magic Johnson is throwing balls off his head on fast breaks just to humiliate the kid because they all just find him ridiculous. And the whole time there's one punchline after another about Earl Jones. And if there's anything in this world that would make me happy, it's a future season of winning time 
with Earl Jones as a character. That is a horrifying answer you just gave to my question, what? but also fascinating. Yes, because I just asked you on a team with Kareem, yeah, Magic, Riley. You just you just threw Jerry West at us there. We're not even talking of Worthy and Jamal Wilkes and anybody else on those teams. Jerry Buss, the owner who was like Hugh Hefner before Hugh Hefner. You with the stunning answer of Earl Jones. Sorry to disappoint. <laughs> no, it's a great answer. I <laughs> hope the sequel to Winning Time is, is just, it has to be, it must be. Or if, if Winning Time has great success, the sequel has to be the guy that Magic kept throwing the ball to hit him in the head because he had bad dental work. That sounds like, uh, that sounds like the next John C. Riley character. Wait, the best, the best thing about it is when I interviewed Earl Jones, he was selling used cars in West Virginia. He was very friendly. And he was like, I own Kareem. And they ask anyone, ask anyone. I own Kareem in those workouts. So I started asking people and they were all like, this guy was the worst basketball player on the planet. This guy was so talentless. It was ridiculous. So you asked anyone when he said that. Yeah, you did. Because <laughs> back then, you know, back then the drafts were long and I would, he was a first round pick and I would get like the, the third round pick from Furman and the fifth round pick from Georgia Southern. And I'd be like, so what was Earl Jones like? And they could not contain their disdain for the limited basketball skills or IQ of Earl Jones. I wanted to get on uh, Pat Riley with Adam McKay. McKay wanted to do it, uh, but Pat is hesitant, and I think it might be, although I haven't asked him, because he didn't like the book, which I didn't comb through it, but I'm like, why wouldn't he like that book? Uh, why wouldn't he like that book? I don't know they didn't like the book. I never heard that from him. It's possible. For all I know, he never read it. I don't know. I think it's a pretty fair and accurate portrayal of Pat Riley and not a, it was definitely not a hit job on him. I mean, later on in his last year with the Lakers, really last two years, the team was definitely starting to tune him out. And I think he was, a, he certainly was aware of that though. And guys were not charitable in their assessments of him as a late Laker coach, but that kind of happens with all coaches, namely a coach who doesn't wear out his welcome after a while in the NBA. So um, I actually don't know. I really don't. When you write your books, and you just told us about uh, Favre and Rocket, who's been most angry at you? Eddie Payton, Walter Payton's brother, literally wrote his own Walter Payton book and used the intro of the book to slam my book, which is ironic because by writing the intro of a book to slam my book, you're actually helping sell the book that you're trying to slam by writing your own book. Why was he that angry? he didn't like, I'm sure he didn't like the depiction of him and also his relationship with Walter Payton. Like everyone I talked to about Walter, when I would bring up Eddie would be like, yeah, Eddie, kind of like that. Yeah, you should talk to him. You definitely, you definitely want to talk to him, but he can be a little whatever. And I did talk to him and I enjoyed my time with Eddie Payton, but definitely the relationship between him and Walter was not an easy one. And there was definitely some jealousy from older brother to younger brother. Who was a subject that when you were writing about them anywhere in the book, you're like, ooh, this is going to land in a way that is poisonous. This is going to land in a way that someone uh, will be hurt or made deeply unhappy by what it is that I'm writing here. I mean, in a way, I'd also say Walter Payton because what and, and it did, you know, like Walter Payton's kids, Jared and Brittany, were awesome and they're wonderful people. They really are. But that book is not an easy read. Like there's Walter Payton at the end of his life. Um, I mean, at his Hall of Fame induction ceremony, his wife was in row one and his girlfriend was in row two, uh, row three. Um, he was very depressed. I found 
uh, suicide notes he wrote late in his life. I, I didn't, at the time I wrote that book, CTE had not been as thoroughly explored as it is now, but I feel very, very confident that he had some brain damage from his football career. I mean, he was a despondent and really high, low, high, low figure. Um, and I, I know reading that book was not pleasant for his family. I don't regret the book, but I don't love, I don't love inflicting pain on good people. What can you tell people about Showtime, the era that puts it in the context of what was happening in sports and some of the larger societal stuff that you like to write about? I just think the era, 79, 80, 81, 82, it was this really fascinating sort of time period in America, the rise of Reaganism and sort of this idea that you're going to feel good in America after the Jimmy Carter years. I'm not saying this is accurate, but that was kind of the time period. You're going to feel good about being America. And we're all about feeling positive and positivity and smiling and just America is back. That whole thing, that whole branding was the Lakers. And Magic Johnson's smile, you alluded to his smile. His smile was worth, I mean, Jerry, you know, it is not a, it is not an exaggeration that Jerry West wanted to draft Sidney Moncrief instead of Magic Johnson. And the thing the Lakers saw in Magic, number one, was the charisma and the smile. And that lined up perfectly with sort of where America was at that time, where it's marketing and it's glitz and it's glamour. And I just think the entire era of Showtime is all about that. It's not It's not just about basketball. It's about making people feel good watching basketball. I offered you the stories of Magic Johnson and Kareem, and you chose Earl Jones. You hey, did man. You did that. that. That's Magic Johnson's story. It goes through HIV. It goes through conquering Hollywood and promising everybody that he would become the tycoon, the tycoon that he became, owner of the Dodgers, Earl Jones. He's the tallest used car salesman in America. <laughs> I'm offended by that answer now. I've got to be honest with you here at the very end of this. I am now, I am, in, I'm enraged and I'm going to say it even though you're the expert and it was your book. That was yeah. the incorrect answer. You gave, you, the, your opinion is wrong. Let me just say this. I'm being serious. The thing about writing the books is you love the fringe characters. They're the ones that you obsess over the most. Because I'm not saying you can't learn new things about magic, but magic has been interviewed a thousand times, a hundred thousand times. When you find little stories about people, I know obviously the saga of Magic Johnson is generally more interesting than the saga of Earl Jones. But when you find little nuggets and little bits of information in my shoes, it just sets you off. Jeff, so it's, I feel Jeff, you. it's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He's like, you. I will not accept from you the answer that Earl Jones's nuggets were more interesting in weaving the tapestry you're weaving. When you all you're looking for is to mine, and whether they've looked at the subjects you're covering, they're hugely famous people who have been written about plenty. You didn't write a book about goddamn Earl Jones. I'm going to tell you something right now, and I mean this. If you're ever looking for a used car in West Virginia, do not go to Earl Jones because I will tell him that you're disparaging him on this show. Jeff, thank you. Uh, very much enjoy your work and encourage everyone. They're all New York Times bestsellers, Three Ring Circus, USFL, Favre, Sweetness, Rocket, Boys. We didn't even talk about boys this time. Give me the best thing. Give the audience the best thing from boys. You can only give them one of these nuggets. It can't be one of these Earl Jones nuggets either. Uh, I love that you opened that book with Michael Irvin trying to kill a man, a teammate with scissors. Well, I mean, I was going to say, Michael Irvin tried to kill a teammate with scissors. My <laughs> Everett McIver had the audacity of sitting in his barber seat. So Michael Irvin, who is out of his gourd, takes a pair of scissors and stabs him in the neck. 
And the Lakers have, I mean, the uh, Dodgers, uh, the Dodgers, the Cowboys and Jerry Jones have to basically do everything they can legally to keep him out of jail because he was on probation at that point. So uh, it doesn't get better now. Do you have a better one? Do you, do you have a better open to a book than Michael Irvin trying? And that, how, how, how much did that teammate weigh? Because it wasn't just that he was going after a guy that was in his barber chair. It was a guy that was about 140 pounds heavier than him, wasn't it? I think it was about 290, Everett McIver. Maybe 300. Uh, yeah. That one in the Mets. I mean, the Mets opened with, I mean, I opened the Laker book, um, or maybe I closed it. I, Spencer Haywood, legendary Laker. I overflowed his toilet and I was in his house. And all I did was pee, I swear to God. But I was, I'm, he's in the other room and I'm sitting there with a plunger trying to stop the water. And the water is overflowing out his toilet and running under the door into his daughter's room, which is carpeted. And I'm freaking out in Spencer Haywood's bathroom. And this is one of the key interviews. And this is my introduction to Spencer Haywood is me running out and being like, do you have a plastic bag or two? And not even telling him why. And I'm literally, he thinks I'm like, just going to the bathroom for a long period of time. And I'm sitting there plunging his toilet. And all I did was pee. So that was pretty adventurous too. The Mets, you were saying the beginning of the Mets book. Well, the Mets book is uh, they're flying, um, they're flying home from Houston, destroying a plane, snorting coke in the bathrooms, and like the wives are on the flight with them, and they're vomiting all over their patent leather outfits, as Ron Darling said. And this plane, you know, it's just this massive party, thirty thousand feet in the uh, in the air. You have to grab them. You always have to try to at least grab. You know, the opening chapter of her book is very valuable. Jeff, thank you, sir. Always enjoy your work, and thank you. I'm grateful for your time. Uh, thank you so much. Take care. A lot has changed over the years, but you know one thing that hasn't? The great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what's the best thing about the original light beer? I pose this question to you. I don't know. You tell me right now. Okay, yeah, that's good. I like that. Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975, and we still haven't settled it. The best thing for me about a nice Miller Lite is when I'm on the boat, I bring those tall, I, I don't even go for the, the regular 12 ounce cans. I hit the tall boy 16 ounce cans. They usually come in a four packs wherever I buy beer. You put it in the cooler, you put some ice on top. The moment you take it out and the sun reflects off that gold top of Miller Lite with that white can, a beautiful sight out on the open ocean. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling and it tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right to your door, visit MillerLite.com slash beach. Or you can find it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer cows and carbs than premium regular beer.